This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When he was a kid, Denver comedian Ben Roy says he was molested by a counselor at a Catholic summer camp. Memories from that time have come flooding back for him with all the focus on sexual abuse in the church. Recently, Roy sent a tweet that caught our attention. We had him read it. I'm still shocked people believe children did not come forward and alert their parents of abuse by clergy. True, some didn't, but a lot did speak up and their parents did nothing. I spoke up. It isn't just children's fears creating this. It's the parents' fears as well. Indeed, Ben Roy tried to tell his parents as best he could what he says happened, but for various reasons they didn't take action. Roy went on to struggle with drugs and alcohol. He spent time in jail. Today, he's sober and stars in a TV show called Those Who Can't. But he is still haunted by his memories of that camp. We asked Ben if he'd come on with his dad, Bob, to talk about the alleged abuse, the silence that followed, and the path to forgiveness. Both men agreed. And welcome. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks. Ben, tell us more about what sparked your tweet. You know, I I mean, I think it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, um, you know, as this uh, abuse scandal reignites again. Uh, What I read as a common thread throughout all of it is the fact that children didn't come forward or, or the fact that we wish kids had said something before. And that's just not the case. A lot of kids spoke up. I know I said something. And for whatever reason, parents didn't come forward, whether it was out of fear or there wasn't an open dialogue about it. But I feel like the unnecessary burden sometimes is placed on children. I'd like you to share a little of your story, whatever you feel comfortable sharing about what you say happened at this camp in New Hampshire, Camp Fatima in the 1980s. uh, We should say it's run by the diocese there. Yeah. In 1986, I, um, you know, my parents had sent my brother and I to camp. It was a a, a Catholic camp. We were um, set to be there for a month. And then your parents would come and visit on the weekends. And I don't really, you know, I mean, I was seven years old. I don't recall at the beginning much anything out of the ordinary. You know, I mean, it was very much a camp experience that I think most people would probably remember. It was kind of bucolic and idyllic. It rested right on a lake. There was lots of, uh, you know, it was in the middle of the woods. It was beautiful. It's a very beautiful camp. But then at some point, the atmosphere kind of started to change. It felt a lot more um, boys clubby. I just remember it being more inappropriate now when I look back, like, you know, being in my underwear in the cabin, which, you know, as an adult, I know if I had heard, you know, that about my child or whatnot. You're a dad. Yeah, Yeah, I'm a father. And then I remember a very vivid instance of abuse um, that had happened. And I remember other children being involved in it. And then there are things that I just don't remember. I remember things starting. For instance, I remember being pulled onto uh, one of the counselor's beds, but I don't remember what happened after that. I don't know. But I remember um, at first enjoying it. And then, you know, when my uh, parents came to visit partway through, I didn't want to stay any longer. And I remember not wanting to be there. That's very distinct in my memory. I also remember not wanting to use the restrooms. I I would go outside the cabin. And I don't even know if that's something that I've ever told you, Dad. You may recall better. I think you guys had taken us to lunch, right, Dad? 
Uh, yeah, I, I think at that point you were so intent on coming home that we just said, okay. And I remember feeling a pretty sizable sense of relief. Did you tell your parents at that point why you wanted to go home? No. No. No, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I had the the understanding. You know, I, I don't know the vocabulary, that yeah. right? Yeah. Do you think that the the blurriness of the memory is related to your age? I mean, I'm trying to remember things specifically when I was seven. I think mm-hmm. it's hard to conjure up, or or the nature of what happened, or maybe both. I think it's both. And the tough part is, is that the particular instance that I recall, and I'll spare graphic details. I don't know that it really matters. But uh, at the hand of a counselor, to be clear, correct. is that right? A camp counselor. Yes. Yeah, that's very vivid. It's seared in my memory. You know. Um, the rest of it is kind of washed in this kind of milky opaqueness. I want to put this into some context. Six people filed suit back in 2002, alleging sexual assaults at this camp. Mm-hmm. The camp director from 1968 to 1990, and that includes the time you were there, died in 02. Uh, I'll say that you weren't a party to those suits. Nope. But they have since been settled. When did it emerge in your family that something untoward had happened at camp? So I was either 10 or 11. We were sitting at the table having a Sunday meal. And truthfully, I don't even remember what we were talking about. And I blurted out, jokingly, a piece of what had happened. I just said something. Frankly, I don't remember the the details of it. What I do remember is that at the time... We all just looked at each other and then turned to him and said, what are you talking about? And Ben's reaction was, oh, I'm just kidding. And we said, well, Ben, if if anything happened that we should know about, you should tell us. And he said, no, 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 I was just kidding. And we kind of left it at that. Yeah, I, I remember it pretty much exactly like that. I think but whatever you said was pretty literal, it sounds like. It was definitely inappropriate. Like it was enough... <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but it was enough where everybody, where their reaction to it was what set me on my heels to backtrack. Huh. I didn't want to, you know, I felt like it was bad. Like at that, and I think that that's the moment that I realized this isn't right because I saw all their reactions, my brother, my mom, and my dad. That is to say that this was brought up and and what Bob quickly dispatched with, or to take us into your conversations as parents? Well, I I think that we were concerned at what he said, but as much as we tried to get any more out of him, uh, he he just wouldn't talk about it, and we didn't know what to do further. I think that in the way of looking at this uh, with a little bit of context, it's good to understand that Ben's mom and I both grew up in, you know, very devout Catholic families, uh, in predominantly Catholic communities. Uh, we were both sent to Catholic schools and indoctrinated in the teachings of the church, and they imparted upon us the notion that if you can trust anybody at all uh, with regard to safety and security, it's the church. And so, you know, I think that to some extent may have affected the way we looked at this because, you know, we had sent them to camp really because we wanted them to have uh, a good experience of getting out of the city during the summer and getting to be with other kids their age and, and play sports and all of that. 
And when we selected a church-related camp, we felt, well, uh, you know, here, here's an institution that uh, we should be able to trust with the care of our children. Certainly, if I were making the same decision today, it would be a lot different. Ben Roy, I, I note that you are tearing up. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I know that, but I don't know that I've ever really heard that from my father's mouth. Uh, it certainly means a lot. What means a lot in particular? Hearing that and hearing, you know, someone contextualize why, you know, they made the decisions uh, that they did. It, uh, it means a lot to me. So, Ben, you think you have found the man you believe to be your abuser. He was a 19-year-old camp counselor then mm-hmm. and had actually attended the camp as a child himself back in the 1970s. According to him, yep. When many of these alleged cases of abuse were said to have taken place. Yeah. We're not naming names here, but tell us how you found him and his response to you. I, I Typical, I think, of most people who you know, experienced some sort of abuse or victimization, daydreamed for years about being able to confront their abuser. And uh, over the years, as my anger frothed, I was, you know, I I wanted that. I wanted that face-to-face, you know. And in um, 2014, before I had moved to uh, Los Angeles to film Those Who Can't. This is the television show you have on True TV. Yeah, my wife and I were watching a show about the Vatican and I, and I got in my head, you know, I've never Googled the camp. So I Googled it and all these articles about 2002 had come up um, and the scandal and Carl Dowd, the father Carl Dowd, the priest that ran it. My brother came out later on about a year later and I was still kind of mulling over and still looking here and there. And he's like, you know, I have a yearbook from oh. that time. So he gave me the yearbook, but there was no assignment to their cabin but one face stuck out and my wife was sitting there and i was like this guy looks very familiar so i found his name on the key and i pulled up people with that name and i messaged about eight or nine of them with a blanket message hey were you a counselor at camp fatima in the 80s and i checked every day nothing for a month nothing and so i forgot about it because i figured no one's gonna respond and then three months later, I got a response. I got a response from a guy who said, yeah, I was a camp counselor in 1986 at Camp Fatima. And then he asked me, were you in cabin number one? And that was the cabin I was in. And I said, yeah, I mean, I was in cabin number one. And he goes, were you there for a month? And I said, I was supposed to be there for a month. And he's like, because I remember a Ben that was supposed to be there for a month. And then I realized, you know, through conversations and through me stringing it out after that and getting him to tell me things about it, like where his bunk placement was and where the other counselor I recall's bunk was, he validated all my memories of it. Was he the face you had picked out? Picked out? Yeah. And what did he say? Did you confront him? I, after talking to a lawyer and uh, finding out what my legal rights were spoiler alert there are none um, statute of limitations passed. on civil on criminal it would have been a long road i was advised that it would have been a long road um and so i was told there wasn't much i could do so i tried to string him along more to see how much more he would talk about and then one day i just hit him with it and i said i remember all the dark things and i remember inappropriate behavior 
and he freaked out. He was like, I don't know what you're talking about. He finally said, I'm on the, I think he said he was on the side of the road and that he left me his number. And so I picked up the phone and I was ready to, to read him the riot act. And when he answered the phone, you know, your monsters never sound like they, you think they're going to sound, they sound like people, you know? And I think that's the worst thing I could have done. The worst thing is confronting him. Yeah. What would makes you say that? Um, you know, you put a voice in your head to how it's going to be and you think that you're going to hear something nefarious or, you know, a, a deep voice or something that sounds creepy, but he just, he just sounded like a dude and he sounded scared and he was nervous and on the side of the road and it sounded like or whatever he was doing. And I felt, I felt bad for him and no one ever, you know, I would talk about this when I was in drug counseling. No one ever prepared me. No one told me, you know, when you confront somebody to, to be prepared to feel bad for them, to feel guilt. I'll just say that you dealt with uh, addiction in yeah. your life, alcoholism, drugs. Do you think that that's in part an outgrowth of what happened at Kip? Oh, most certainly. Uh-huh. You know, and I mean, when I would get drunk, my wife was like, your, your catchphrase of drunk Ben should have been, you're not listening to me. I would yell that constantly. I, I would just, you're not, you're not hearing me. You're not listening to me. You know, that's always been my, even if you watch my comedy, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's all about not feeling like I'm heard and at a volume. So did the, the former counselor, camp counselor ever admit to it? No, he backtracked all his memories. Now, maybe I wasn't your counselor. You know, maybe it was this person. They were defrocked. They ended up becoming a priest and this person was defrocked. All of a sudden, his memory is very foggy. And then finally, I got him to admit that he was the counselor, but he doesn't know who the assistant counselor was at that time. And he later told me he could find out because he still works for Camp Fatima. He is still onboarding new people there. And that's when I, I didn't want to do it anymore. You know what I mean? Like I, the whole thing just made me sick. They haven't changed. They're not going to change. They don't have to change. No one's making them, you know, so. Bob, did you know that Ben had reached out to the counselor who he believes is the counselor? Yes. He and I spoke uh, a lot during that time Mm -hmm. and uh, he told me what he had done. And, you know, I I advised him to uh, proceed carefully because you don't know where this is going to take you. You just need to be careful about how you approach this. Make sure that you're doing something that you can live with. Yeah. And I think they both, um, both my parents, both my mother and my father, when I had found the articles about that, they they weren't aware of the scandal that had happened. And I emailed them the night that I found all this information about the camp. After you'd Googled. Yeah, after I'd Googled it. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guests are Denver comedian Ben Roy and his father Bob. With sexual abuse in the Catholic Church back in the spotlight, they're sharing their family's experience. In 1986, Ben says he was molested by a counselor at a church summer camp in New Hampshire. We reached out to the diocese that runs it for comment. Here's some of their statement. Camp Fatima is strongly committed to keeping children and youth safe and has implemented a number of measures to protect them. 
All volunteers and employees must undergo background checks and complete training about how to identify and report sexual abuse. Whenever Camp Fatima becomes aware of an allegation, it reports the matter to civil authorities, regardless of when the abuse took place. Camp Fatima prohibits anyone who has been found to have abused a minor from working or volunteering here. The statement encourages Ben to report what happened to law enforcement and to Camp Fatima. They've offered him pastoral care. You can read the statement in full at CPR.org. Ben's reaction to it? Typical canned legal jargon. There's no heart and it doesn't mean anything. The last thing that I want to do is go to any kind of therapy services that are being provided by the same group of people who victimized me. Bob, you said earlier that you would have done things differently if you had to do them over again. Uh, yes. Just expound on that a little bit for me. Well, I mean, uh, I guess as, a, as advice to parents today uh, who might find themselves in a similar situation, if you hear something like that from your child, you, you need to question. You need to ask more questions. You need to not assume that just because the church is involved in this, that there isn't the possibility that something wrong is going on. And actually, based on all of the information that's become public in recent years, my advice would be if you do suspect that something's been going on, don't go to the church. Go to law enforcement. Because there's a difference between a sin and a crime. And the church seems to feel that it's adequately prepared to deal with sins, but it's demonstrated that it's definitely not adequately prepared to deal with crimes. It tends to uh, want to cover up crimes. And the public has to step in. You know, I mean, this is a public health crisis now. If you're placing thousands of men and women, and let's not forget that this is women too. Boys, you know, I want to say this, boys get more attention because of the Northeast, you know, Boston and, and Philadelphia's latent homophobia. You know, it's, it's disgusting to them. But if you look, women are abused as well by the church and it's not talked about. And I think people have to start demanding answers. They also have to start realizing that if you're releasing thousands of children into adulthood with repressed trauma, that comes at a great cost to public taxpayers. The taxpayers absorb cost of jailing. I've been to jail multiple times. They paid for me to go to rehab. I'm not saying I'm not taking my responsibility out of this, but I think had this not happened, I think how I dealt with things probably would have been a lot different. I've been to the hospital five times when I didn't have insurance because I didn't have money for alcohol-related issues when drinking. If you look at the, the total of that, thousands in every city, this is a pandemic. And the Catholic Church exists tax exempt. This is no longer an issue of spirituality. This is a cost to taxpayers. What is your relationship to the Catholic Church these days, gentlemen? Bob, I, I'll start with you and then Ben will have you answer that. I have not been involved or associated with any church in many years. Do you think that's a function of what your son experienced? That's part of it. I've experienced other things associated with my relationship with the Catholic Church that demonstrated to me uh, a sense of uh, hypocrisy that was so startling uh, that I said, I, I cannot claim in any way to be a part of this organization. 
Do you miss it, though? Do you miss the fellowship? Uh, not really, no. Mm. You know, I mean, I think, drawing back to the way I grew up, participation in religion wasn't really a choice for us. This was what our parents wanted for us. I'm not sure that I ever truly could consider myself a devout Catholic. And certainly after everything that I've experienced over the years uh, with the Catholic Church, I got to a point where I said, I- I'm done with this. I-, I can't do this anymore. Ben, for you? No, no. I mean, I haven't been involved. Uh, I'm, you know, but I've come to peace with, you know, my my mother, who is, is not on the call and not because she didn't want to be. She's obviously much more emotional about this. I think my my dad composes himself very well. And and uh, my mom is is very emotional when she talks about this. And so she was all for me speaking out and letting my father speak. And, um, but my mother is still devout, but has also expressed to me an, ex- an extreme discontent and dissatisfaction with the way that the Catholic Church is handling things and her frustration with it. I don't. Um, and I, you know, you have no connection to the church today. No, mm-hmm. no. I mean, I don't know what I believe in. You know, I want to believe in something. You know, but I don't. I know it's not done like this. I, I wouldn't ask anyone uh, this question except a, a comedian, which is: Would you ever laugh about this? Would Would this ever be fodder for the act? Yeah, maybe. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I'm still Adam Kate and Holland, my good friend and co-star. He said, I think you're still learning how to tell the story. And I think that that's a big thing. I'm still learning how to talk about it and to tell the story and what parts I want to talk about. And I think once I figure figure that out, I do want to say this, that like I've also come to a lot of um, the terms with my parents. You know, I mean, uh, I, I don't feel animosity towards them. I understand that at that time there wasn't a word for it. It wasn't talked about. So you're in a place, do I hear forgiveness? Oh, totally. Okay. And understanding. Now we know that's how kids broach subjects. They joke about it. They test the waters, you know. And I would say that to parents out there. You, You have to hear what they're saying now and dig and pull. Because the damage that I faced, I'm fortunate. I could have experienced years of like like other people have years of abuse right Uh exactly and i think now i look at it and i see that probably a lot of the damage came from feeling like i wasn't heard or protected and i know a hundred percent my dad is here you know how much guts this takes for amanda sit you know i'm i can't uh express how much this means because if i was a dad and who loves his kid as much as I know my parents love me and knowing that I made a decision that may have impacted or impacted somebody negatively that I care about, it would be very difficult for me to to stand and speak about it. You know, when Ben and I talked about this, I told him, you know, he said this would mean a lot to me. And I said, well, you mean a lot to me. And so, yes, I will do this. You know, there was no, no doubt in my mind that I was going to do it. You know, myself and Ben's mom have both gone through a lot of agony over this because the last thing you want to see is your children in pain. And it's hard to think that maybe the cause of that pain was something you failed to do. So certainly, you know, it it hurts us a lot to know that. But on the other hand, we're really 
glad that we've been able to maintain the level of communication that we've had all along. And, you know, as a parent, for me, uh, my greatest joy in life is knowing what great people my sons are, both of them. I'm very proud of my kids, and, and it's not for what they've done in life. It's for who they've become. Thanks, Dad. Thank you to, to both of you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Ben Roy of Denver and his father, Bob. Today, Ben is a comedian and stars in the true TV show, Those Who Can't. We talked about the lasting effects of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Describing the human experience, that's what writers and thinkers from around the world hope to do in Boulder, starting this afternoon at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival. And the best part, it's free. One of the authors who will be there is Marcia Douglas, professor of creative writing and Caribbean literature at CU Boulder. Her most recent book is The Marvelous Equations of the Dread, a novel in bass rhythm. It has been hailed for its poetry and prose that intertwine Jamaica's history of violence and that country's creative humanity. And Marcia, welcome to the program. Thank you. What inspired Marvelous Equations? I mean, in some ways, it's a story about Bob Marley, but it goes mm. far beyond that. Yes. Well, um, the novel was inspired uh, for the most part by Jamaican music, reggae music, um, and I wrote it out of what you might call a reggae aesthetic or dub aesthetic. And I was also just inspired by Kingston as a place because I grew up in Kingston. And reggae and Kingston go together. How, how so? <laughs> Give us a feel for that when you're on the streets in Kingston. Um I don't feel that you can walk on the streets in Kingston without hearing music. And Kingston in general is just a very noisy and chaotic place. And the book tries to capture all of that. It's a very sound conscious book. And um, yeah, and so it seemed to me that if you're writing a book that uh, attempts to capture something of the spirit of Kingston, it needs to be noisy in some way. How does an author make a book noisy? <laughs> well, in my case, um, I wrote a noisy book by um, structuring it around what you might call sound bites. And so um, the book is divided into all of these uh, fragments, um, which you can think of as tracks. Um, it's also uh, structured around um, musical uh, devices such as the dub side, version, remix, that sort of thing. I also think of Jamaica as a place where colonial history uh, clashes Mm. with the people who are there. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel that very much in this book. Yes, yeah. Well, um, the book actually is set for the most part in Halfway Tree, which is a square in Kingston, um, which has a landmark, which is a Victorian clock tower. 
And that clock tower is actually a very strong symbol of uh, Jamaica's colonial past um, because it was built in memory of King Edward VII. So it is a place where you have past and present and all sorts of things clashing there, right there physically and symbolically in that square. How does it feel to you to be there? And I want to say that you also spent time in the UK. Yes. I was born in the UK and I grew up in Jamaica. And I um, actually spent a lot of time in Halfway Tree because I went to school in that area. And so I actually had reason to um, walk by the clock tower pretty much on a daily basis, you might say. And one thing I remember about that clock tower is that it was always in disrepair and the hands were always stuck. And so maybe that somehow traumatized me. I don't know. Huh. <laughs> Wait, <same laughs> and so I came to write a, a book about why these hands might have been stuck. This book speaks of river mamas, mm. a sort of spiritual mermaid. You write about fierce baby mothers. Yeah. Uh, really a cast of strong female voices who move the story along. Yeah. I, I'd like you to focus perhaps on, on some of the strong women in this book. Right. Well, um, one of the women characters um, in the book is Lena. Lena is a, a Rasta woman, and there's a way in which it's her story. She begins and ends the book. And I like to think of her as emotionally owning the book. And so there are other... Lena's a fictional character. And there are other fictional, um, historical characters, rather, in the book, such as Bob Marley. However, uh, for the most part, we get characters such as Bob Marley through the lens of Lena. There's also Marcus Garvey in this book. And uh, Marcus Garvey, for those who don't know the history, uh, I think was born in Jamaica, came to the United States, Mm. and was incredibly influential in the civil rights movement, in Pan-Africanism as Mm. well, and and this notion of returning uh, to Africa, but perhaps to Liberia, Mm. and creating a nation there. Yes. And, um, but I, I want to go back to the women, though. <laughs> okay. That's a man. <laughs> so you, you say that she's the emotional sort of uh, underpinning of this book, Lena. Yes. Tell us more about her. She's also um, a love interest of Bob Marley as well. Um, and so that narrative thread informs the book, too. I had a lot of fun with, with that thread. Um, and uh, she is... Uh, one of uh, one 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 character of three generations of um, Rasta women explored in the book. There's also Sister Vaughn, who's her mother, and there's also her daughter Angela. Well, speaking of her daughter, I'd like to have you read from the book. I think these are her daughter's words, right? And it also speaks to the presence of water in this book. I feel yes. like there's a lot of water in this book. I guess that makes sense. Right. Island space. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the Atlantic, the Caribbean. And I, I, this also speaks, I think, to the poetry aspect of this book. It's a lovely blend of, of poetry and prose. Uh, so this is Angela, and this section is called When I Call Your Name. Mama? Mama? Can you hear me? At what speed does love travel underwater? They say there is a laughter only River Mama can hear. They say if you play a record backwards, there are words there 
and there are secrets in the scratchy silences between songs. There is a rhythm that loops from Hirsa all the way across centuries. Old-time people heard it, layered under night rain. If a sound is an echo, is it still real? Copies of copies of sound? And if you find my voice in a fissure in your sleep, will it be less real? Remember the baby mothers who were forced to jump off the ships? Sometimes I hear their children calling, Mama! Here's what I know. When I call your name, my voice is their echo. I think that speaks as well to the noise that you wanted in this book, how much it is about sound. Are the ships that you describe there, are those slave ships? Those are slave ships. Yeah. Right. And so Angela is remembering, you know, those baby mothers who jumped um, off the ships. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with author Marcia Douglas about her latest novel, The Marvelous Equations of the Dread, a novel in bass rhythm. We are speaking with Marcia in part because she is taking part in the Z Jaipur Literature Festival, which kicks off today in Boulder. It's just a huge event with authors from all over the globe. It's free and open to the public. Uh, Let's talk briefly about Rastafarianism and its place in this book. And I'd like to know what you hope readers who may not be familiar with the Rastafari, what they might get out of this. Okay. Um, I I tend to see uh, Rastafari as being one of the more uh, progressive aspects of Jamaican culture. Um, Rasta is a community of free thinkers and trailblazers. And... Um, it's also a community of innovators as well. And uh, that community has made much contributions to Jamaica in terms of arts and culture and also uh, black consciousness as well. And there's a way in which uh, the movement in some ways has been um, ahead um, of the rest of Jamaica in, in many ways, politically anyway. Um, so that's one thing that I would hope readers might glean from the book about Rastafari. Having said that, the, the, the novel does not mean to idealize the movement either. What is it like to be at the Jaipur Literature Festival? You've been to previous iterations. What does it feel like? It's very exciting. It's a very rich space. Uh, there are so many writers from all over the country, all over the world, um, and uh, not just writers, but um, I, I also love the, you know, the way in which writers have the opportunity to engage with the audience as well. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Marcia Douglas talking about her newest novel, The Marvelous Equations of the Dread, a novel in bass rhythm. She's part of the Z Jaipur Literature Festival, which kicks off today in Boulder. Dinosaur artist sounds like an answer you'd get if you asked a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
Well, Melody Brooks Safekin became one. She's been drawing dinosaurs since she was little, growing up on the western slope where fossils abound. Today, she's a nationally known paleontological illustrator. She's also an instructor at Colorado Mesa University. I spoke with her while she was artist-in-residence at the Mesa County Library in Grand Junction last fall, where she taught others to draw the past using a somewhat surprising cue from the present. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What's the difference between someone who draws dinosaurs and a paleontological illustrator? Mostly it's just the level of accuracy that you strive to achieve. Um, A good way to think about it is that somebody that uh, enjoys drawing dinosaurs for fun might not necessarily consider how feathers might lay on the forearm of a velociraptor. But my job is to go ahead and interpret the bones and look at modern living animals to try and best simulate what they would have looked like in life. Mm. And so that comes with some training I'm gathering in biology, anatomy. A little bit. Uh, Most of my work is actually self-taught. I've taken a lot of classes on dinosaurs and primarily illustration and animation so that I could understand the functions of life and how to simulate real-world situations that direction, and then take my self-study from paleontology. And a lot of my work deals with allowing experts in their field to give me information and oversee the work that I do so that I have the cutting edge of somebody that is strictly trained uh, trained in paleontology. Got it. And we work together to create these illustrations. So they're giving you feedback as you make this art. And illustrating prehistory means creating something that neither you nor anyone else has actually ever seen. Um, Exactly. Can can you compare that to, I don't know, say trying to draw a dragon? I mean, is there some amount of imagination in this? Yes. Yes, definitely. It's uh, actually pretty similar. Um, If you were to consider, say, uh, Smaug, the great and terrible, that, uh, you know, the dragon that what a workshop created, it was their job to take living animals such as bats and lizards, primarily to understand how an animal that was a combination of the two might be able to function and then bring it to life on screen. What I do is very similar, where I have to use comparative anatomy for, say, uh, a chicken and or an ostrich and see how their locomotion works, how their muscles work, and use a little bit of reptile anatomy as well and use the two of those together to make a dinosaur that somebody hasn't ever seen in life but that seems as though it also could. Wait, there are similarities between chickens and dinosaurs? Absolutely. The chicken is actually the closest living relative of dromaeosaurs, like a velociraptor, a deinonychus, any of the, you know, very popular dinosaurs that uh, have the sickle claw. Uh, So studying chickens gives you real insight into all sorts of things, I imagine. Yeah, movement and Mm -hmm. um, what else? Um, behavioral adaptations that a lot of birds have are something that we can also apply to dinosaurs. But chicken is a nice example because they happen to be very easily accessible. There's a lot of them. You can have some in your own backyard to reference. But the way that they structure themselves as a society and a pecking order, um, you can apply to ancient animals that may have lived in similar situations can also use that uh, chickens are technically cannibalistic and interpret that other animals of a, you know, an extinct nature of a similar size might have also been cannibalistic. Right, because you have to think not just about how they look in your paleontological mm-hmm. illustrations, but how they 
act. And so you, yes. you, you work with chickens in this. And I do. What kind of rapport do you establish with a chicken that you're drawing? Well, I raise chickens as though they were dogs. Um, I am known as a crazy chicken lady. Okay. But uh, they're very intelligent animals, and you can train them. I have them walk on leashes. They lay down. They roll over. They use the litter box. Uh, so having birds that are that sociable allows me to really be able to use them, you know, close up. They don't mind me referencing wings, but somebody that it's at home that might not necessarily have a bird that they can handle that closely. You can always go to your local supermarket and just buy a turkey or a chicken and take it home and use that as muscle reference as well. Is it true you've taught a chicken to make a sound like a velociraptor? I have, and you can do that yourself as well. Young roosters, um, from about the first day that they're born until the first three weeks, are incredibly influenced by the auditory sounds you know that they hear in their world. And I found this out by accident and then have been able to replicate it. But uh, some of the roosters that I was raising, I, as a child, watched Jurassic Park a lot because, you know, I love dinosaurs. Yeah. And they would mimic the sounds that they would hear on screen. And the favorite happened to be the velociraptor screech because that happened to be the loudest. And so one rooster in particular really loved this, picked it up and would use that as a warning call whenever something would disturb him. And then the other roosters picked it up, and now there are still roosters out in Whitewater, where we used to live, that mimic his original call. There are some images of dinosaurs that are really well-known to the general public. So I'm thinking of the fearsome Tyrannosaurus rex and the Velociraptor. Uh, That's the bird-like dinosaur in the Jurassic Park (laughs) movies. Uh, But you say that that those portrayals are often not accurate. What, What do you believe is wrong with some of those images? Well, when Steven Spielberg was creating a lot of the animals for Jurassic Park, one of the main um, happenings that has developed since then is that we weren't quite understanding of feather coverings on a lot of these animals. And at the time, in 1990, we thought that perhaps they were bird-like, which he did implement into the films, but we weren't quite sure about feather covering. Well, now we know that they were covered in feathers, so any modern showings of the Jurassic Park franchise are definitely incorrect that way. But also, they wanted animals that they could copyright as strictly Jurassic Park-looking dinosaurs. So they even went as far as to slightly modify the T-Rex's skull, so that he has a very unique look. And uh, animals like the Velociraptor, that's very iconic in Jurassic Park, is actually a completely different animal. It is not Velociraptor. Um, True Velociraptor have very long faces, and they're actually quite small. They're only about three feet tall and about six feet long. But uh, since that did not seem to inspire the movie monster fear that he was looking for, (laughs) they went ahead and used a different animal, which is called Deinonychus, which is just a larger raptor, which happens to be six foot tall and 12 feet long. Who knew that dinosaurs in movies might be manipulated in terms of appearance so yes. <laughs> as, so as to claim the copyright. I feel like a lot of kids love dinosaurs. And then something about that love, um, I don't know, either isn't nurtured or doesn't doesn't persist as much into adulthood. Are you met, meeting, as, as artist in residence, many adults for whom that passion for dinosaurs has not dimmed? I am. Um, there's definitely much more children that are involved Uh, But as far as adults go, I've found that particularly in this community, there's still a lot of love for dinosaurs here. And in the western slope of Colorado, 
We live in the heart of the Morrison Formation, which is, you know, the richest source of dinosaur fossils in North America. So we get to have a really interesting relationship with dinosaurs that I feel has inspired some more love. And we have a lot of paleontologists here and appreciators of the field. Yeah. And people who probably find fossils in their own backyard. Melody, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Melody Brooks-Safkin is a paleontological illustrator and instructor at Colorado Mesa University. Finally today, the next time you go to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, you'll find you aren't alone. And we're not talking about other visitors. We're talking about elves. CPR's Joella Bauman decided to find out what this is all about. And she learned it's not the only mystery at the museum waiting to be solved. I'm here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science because I'm a Denver native and I'd never heard about elves hiding in the museum. Maura works at the museum and she told me all about the elves. I'm Maura O'Neill. I'm the media relations manager here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Kent Pendleton is the name of the artist and in 1971 we hired him to paint the backgrounds in our dioramas in the wildlife halls and he never really intended people to see or celebrate these creatures that he included in the backdrop. It was just something sort of fun for him but now we lovingly have and celebrate our elves. We have an elf hunt so we invite everybody to come and see if they can find all of Kent's works. Kent's creations have gone by many names. Leprechauns, gnomes, elves. What should we call these creatures? I don't know if I can speak expertly to the difference, but we call them elves because that's what Kent called them. So out of respect for him, we honor that name. Okay. I've heard that kids are often the best at finding the elves, so I brought a few kids along with me. My name is Molly. My name is Ariana. My name is Athena. That's my son Amari and his sisters Ariana and Athena. We're ready to go scavenging for some elves. But first, what do we need? Do we just walk around and look for them? Or how do we find the elves? We do have an elf scavenger hunt map that gives you clues to help you find the elves. We can go in blind, but I would highly recommend the map. There are nine elves in total to find. The instructions are pretty detailed. So I'm hoping that finding these elves won't be too easy. For level one, we're going to Space Odyssey. Go to the. That's Ariana leading the hunt, and we aren't the only ones hunting. I see it. And on we go through the museum looking for elves. You'll find some of them laying down, some peeking out from behind a tree or hanging from a branch of a tree, um, but they're typically very small compared to the rest of the backdrops that he painted for us. Some of the hiding places are pretty unique. One diorama spans a 10-foot wall, and the elf there is no bigger than an acorn, smiling devilishly from the back of my son's favorite dino, the Parasaurolophus. And it's not just the hiding places that are unique. A virtual stream runs along the corridor floor, and there's an elf hidden there. He sits perched on a rock and disappears indefinitely. If you're not patient, you'll miss this one. In total, it took us about 40 minutes to find all the elves, and that's when Mora let us in on another secret. There are more elves hidden around the museum that aren't listed on the hunt. There's also some physical statues of, I would call those garden gnomes, that are hidden in other spaces throughout the museum. Those elves are hidden for expert hunters. We found one, but I'm not telling. 
What other secrets does the museum hold? Oh gosh, it's different for everybody every time you come. So I would just say, come as often as you can and see what there is to find. I'm Joella Bauman with CPR News. Okay, I didn't even know Parasaurophilus. Parasaurolophus. Okay, I didn't even know that was a dinosaur. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.